0: spreads as the U.S. steps up the fight against the new variant.
1: We likely will see more cases of Omicron as the weeks and the days go by.
0: Officials say boosters are your best bet. What more do you need to know? I'll speak with Dr. Anthony Fauci and Roe at risk. Nationwide protection for abortion is on the line as the Supreme Court considers a Mississippi case that could overturn Roe v. Wade. Will millions of American women lose their constitutional right to have an abortion? The Republican governor of the state bringing the case Tate Reeves joins me ahead. Plus, uncivil discourse. Republican leaders still refusing to condemn a bigoted attack by a GOP congresswoman.
2: We cannot pretend that this hate speech from leading politicians doesn't have real consequences.
0: What should accountability look like? I'll speak exclusively to Congresswoman Ilhan Omar in moments. Plus, Democratic Senator Chris Murphy. Hello, I'm Dick Tapper in Washington, where the state of our union is trying to stay calm. New this morning, South Africa's president says hospitalizations from Omicron are not increasing at an alarming rate as more states across the United States confirm cases of the new Omicron COVID variant and scientists race to understand how dangerous this variant really is. President Biden is laying out his plan to make it through what could be a difficult winter, including tighter travel rules, free at-home testing and a major push to get more booster shots into arms. And while the concerns over this new variant dominate the headlines, the Delta variant continues to cause misery across the U.S. Nearly every state saw a steep rise in COVID cases over the past week, and the country is back more than 100,000 cases a day for the first time in two months. Let's go straight to Dr. Anthony Fauci, Director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and President Biden's Chief Medical Advisor. Dr. Fauci, good to see you. As always, so let's start with the Omicron variant. Coronavirus cases in South Africa quadrupled in just four days this week, reportedly spreading twice as quickly as Delta. But the South African president said overnight that hospitalizations from Omicron are not increasing at, alarming, at an alarming rate. So have you seen evidence that hospitalizations or deaths are rising, not just cases? And what does all of this suggest to you about this new variant?
1: Well, we're in really quite constant uh, communication with our South African colleagues, Jake. They've really been very good about being transparent. They are giving that indication that you just mentioned. Clearly, in South Africa, Omicron has a transmission uh, advantage because if you look at the number of cases now, they were very much at a low level. Then they had almost a a vertical spike upwards, which is almost exclusively Omicron. Thus far, though it's too early to really make any definitive statements about it, thus far it does not look like there's a great degree of severity to it, but we really got to be careful before we make any determinations that it is less severe or really doesn't cause any severe illness comparable to Delta. But thus far the signals are a bit encouraging regarding the severity. But again, you got to hold judgment until we get more experience. But clearly, it is becoming the dominant variant in South Africa. The question for us here in the United States, now that it is clearly here in at least 15 or more states mm-hmm. and in about 40 countries, is what is it going to be as it competes with a very dominant variant, Delta, which we have 99.9 percent of the isolates in the United States are Delta. And it's going to be very interesting to see when you have the Omicron, which is now clearly in our own country, Mm -hmm. and there is an indication of community spread. What's gonna happen when you have those two competing with each other? It's gonna Mm -hmm. be very interesting to do what we're doing now, watching it. But as you mentioned, I just heard you make the comment in the introduction, boosters are gonna be really critical in addressing whether or not we're gonna be able to handle this.
0: So let's talk about the vaccine, because you've said the level of vaccine protection might diminish against Omicron. Um, there, there's likely still at least some protection, uh, you have also said. At what level would you be still satisfied that the vaccines work against Omicron? Anything over 50% or, or 60% efficacy? What, do you, what are you looking for? You
1: know, I don't, you know Jake, you, you don't want to look for a specific number, but one of the things you do look at, and, and people ask this question all the time, is that the vaccines that we are distributing now in the United States and throughout the world are directed against the original ancestral o Wuhan strain. And yet with Delta, when you get a level of antibody and general immune protection high enough, it spills over to protect against other variants. So we're getting quite good protection against Delta when you're vaccinated and particularly when you get boosted. And that's mm-hmm. the reason why we're saying even with a new variant, like omicron if you get boosted you're going to get your level up way up and we feel certain that there will be a some degree and maybe a considerable degree of protection against the omicron variant if in fact it starts to take hold in a dominant way Mm -hmm. in this country
0: so the u.s has banned uh, non-citizen travel from eight african countries including south africa but not from the roughly three dozen other countries that have omicron cases the head of the united nations a slammed bans such as these as, quote, travel apartheid. Given that the U.S. is now imposing strict tra- testing requirements for international travel, travelers and given that Omicron is here in 15 states, do you think it's time to lift the bans on travel yeah. from South African countries? Yeah.
1: Well, Jake, that ban was done at a time when we were really in the dark. We had no idea what was going on except that there seemed to have been an explosion of cases of omicron in south africa so when the ban was put on it was put to give us time to figure out just what is going on now as you mentioned as we're getting more and more information about cases in our own country and worldwide we're looking at that very carefully on a daily basis hopefully we'll be able to lift that ban within a quite reasonable period of time i mean we we all feel very badly about the hardship that that might have put upon not only south africa but the other African countries. And for that reason, in real time, literally on a daily basis, we're reevaluation that, we're reevaluating that policy.
0: Republican Senator Ron Johnson of Wisconsin said this week that you've been using coronavirus to keep Americans in fear and maintain control. Take a listen.
1: He did the exact same thing with AIDS. He he overhyped it. He created all kinds of fear, saying it could affect the entire population when it couldn't. And he's doing—he's using the exact same play, playbook for COVID.
0: Obviously, that's a bizarre and false assertion. President George W. Bush gave you the Presidential Medal of Freedom because of your leadership in the AIDS crisis, but I did want to give you an opportunity to respond.
1: You know, Jake, how do you respond to something as preposterous as that? Overhyping AIDS—it's killed over seven hundred and fifty thousand Americans and 36 million people worldwide. How do you overhype that? Overhyping COVID? It's already killed 780,000 Americans and over 5 million people worldwide. So I don't have any clue of what he's talking about.
0: I don't think he does either. Dr. Anthony Fauci, thank you so much, appreciate it. The future of Roe v. Wade is uncertain as the Supreme Court considers a case out of Mississippi that could radically transform Abortion Rights Nationwide. Mississippi Governor Tate Reeves will be here to discuss. That's next. And she was the target of a fellow lawmaker's bigoted smear. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota is here exclusively to respond. Welcome back to the State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. The fate of Roe versus Wade, the landmark 1973 decision establishing a constitutional right to an abortion, is now in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court, as the conservative-leaning court seems poised to uphold a Mississippi law that would ban abortion after 15 weeks. This is one of the most significant challenges to abortion rights in decades. Joining us now to discuss, the Republican governor of Mississippi, Tate Reeves. Governor Reeves, good to see you again. Thanks for joining us. So let's start on the Supreme Court case. Based on what you heard in oral arguments, do you think that the Supreme Court will uphold Mississippi's 15-week abortion ban? And do you think the court will overturn Roe v. Wade. Well, Jake, thanks for having
3: me on this morning. I really do appreciate it. This has been a a watershed moment in American history over the last week as as this case that many of us in the pro-life movement have hoped would come before the court for for many years and we actually had oral arguments on Wednesday. Uh, Clearly the questioning by a number of the justices uh, led many people across America and particularly uh, journalists to to opine that they were looking very favorably on upholding uh, the case, uh, the Dobbs case, the Mississippi case. And that's certainly a, a favorable outcome for us. There's a number of different things that the, the, the justices can do here. Clearly, uh, they could recognize, uh, even under the the existing standard, that, that 15 weeks is is not at all radical. In fact, they could... Uh, recognize that the 15-week ban in in the Mississippi case uh, is more in line with with abortion laws around the world uh, than than the current laws in the U.S. In fact, in Europe, for instance, there are 42 countries that have elective um, abortions, and in 39 of them, uh, they would still have more restrictive laws than uh, the state of Mississippi if, in fact, uh, our 15-week ban is upheld. Mm-hmm. The the court also uh, could go further, uh, as you well know, they could. Uh, consider potentially overturning Casey, uh, which was the Planned Parenthood versus Casey case uh, dating back to 1992. Or they could uh, overturn Roe v. Wade in 1973. And the the commentary around uh, the oral arguments on Wednesday certainly give people like me who hope that they do both of those things uh, some reason for optimism. But again, um, I've watched enough court cases to know that um, just because a particular judge or particular justices ask certain questions doesn't mean that's necessarily how they're going
0: to rule. So the state of Mississippi also has a law in the books that would ban all abortions, uh, with exceptions only for rape and the life of the mother, that would snap into effect, it's called a snapback law, snap into effect just days after Roe is overturned, if Roe is overturned. If that happens, would you start enforcing that in your state? Uh, the, the almost complete ban uh, regardless of how many weeks of the pregnancy?
3: Well, Jake, clearly it, it is dependent upon uh, how the court rules and, and exactly what those opinions uh, allow us to do. If in fact uh, Roe is overturned, and, and by the way, uh, I believe very strongly, as do uh, many Americans, uh, that the, the justices on the Supreme Court today um, could look at the Roe v. Wade case and, and come to the conclusion Uh, that the court just simply got it wrong in 1973. Uh, If you read the Constitution, in in my opinion, there is no guaranteed right to an abortion in our U.S. Constitution. And furthermore, not only is there not a guaranteed right, there's also um, nothing in the Constitution that prohibits individual states from enacting their own laws. And, And after all, that's really what the Founding Fathers intended for any issue that is not explicit in the Constitution, it should be left to the states and the state legislatures and the, and the democratic process. And so I just want to make sure uh, everyone is clear that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, uh, that doesn't mean that, that no, no one in America is going to have access, uh, although that might make people like me happy. But it, what it does mean is that all 50 states, the, the, the laboratories of democracy, are going to mm. have the ability uh, to enact their own laws with respect to abortion. Um, and, and I think that's, um,
0: that's the way it should be in America. So is that a yes, that, that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, you will enforce the almost total abortion ban in Mississippi that exists in the inevitability or in the situation where Roe v. Wade is overturned? Yes? Yeah, um, Jake, that is a yes, because if you believe, as I believe
3: very strongly, that that uh, innocent, unborn child in the mother's womb is, in fact, a child, the most important word when we talk about unborn children, is not unborn, but it's children. Mm. And so yes, I will do everything okay. I can to protect the lives
0: uh, of those children. So the, the country has been here before, before 1973, and, and what happens in reality is women of means are still able to get abortions, uh, but poor women, young women, vulnerable women end up often seeking abortions in ways that can cause them severe harm mutilation, if not death, in some cases. Um, so do you acknowledge that this step will result in some women and almost almost certainly getting seriously hurt, some even dying?
3: Well, I certainly uh, would hope that that would not be the case. But what I would tell you, uh, Jake, is that since Roe was enacted in 1973, there have been 62 million American babies uh, that have been killed through uh, this process. And, and I think uh, th- those babies in, in their mother's womb don't have the ability to stand up for themselves. And that's why they have to have people like me and others around this nation that for years uh, have tried to stand up for unborn children. Mm-hmm. I think uh, we, we have to do everything we can as policymakers uh, to improve the quality of public health in our state. And And when you look at this pandemic, there there are a lot of uh, negatives that have come from the pandemic. But one of the the hopefully silver linings that come out of um, dealing with the pandemic over the last year and a half is that uh, we have seen significant investments in infrastructure uh, both from the state and federal level yeah. in our public health system uh, and I think we need to continue to do that and, um, and I think that's important. So
0: you clearly see this move as part of a culture of life uh, as you've said in the past. Mississippi of course ranks 50th in the country in infant mortality. Mississippi is nearly last when it comes to childhood hunger according to a recent study of what kids need to thrive from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, looking at economic well-being and education and health and family and community, Mississippi ranks 50th out of 50 for child well-being. How do you square those statistics about Mississippi with what you say about a culture of life?
3: Well, well, first of all, when when you you look at that unborn baby in the womb and you consider it a, a human being, it really changes your perspective on, on lots of different things. But w- with respect to the, the statistics that you, you quoted, when I ran for office and then ultimately in my first inaugural address, I made it very clear uh, to the people in my state that I believed in my heart that I was elected not to try to hide our problems or not to try to hide our challenges, but to try to fix them. And I perfectly acknowledge that many of those statistics in terms of health outcomes in our state, um, we're underperforming relative to, to other states ac- across the nation. And it's incumbent upon all of us to, to work to pass policies uh, to change that. And, you know, when you look at uh, health outcomes, uh, whether it's uh, prenatal care or, or other areas, uh, we have a ways to, to go. And that hasn't become um, effective in the last year and a half, but it's happened over 200 years. Um, of our state's existence, Mm -hmm. and we're going to do everything we can to improve
0: upon that. Governor Tate Reeves of Mississippi, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Coming up next, Democratic Congresswoman Mm -hmm. Nohan Omar here exclusively to respond to a conservative lawmaker's anti-Muslim attack against her. That's next. Welcome back to State of the Union. I'm Jake Tapper. Uh, This is where we are with the Republican Party right now. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is now defending Colorado Congresswoman Lauren Boebert after this shocking, purely bigoted jab she took at Muslim Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota.
4: I look to my left, and there she is. Ilhan Omar. And I said, well, she doesn't have a backpack. We should be fine.
2: (laughs)
0: McCarthy standing by Bobert, even as she doubles down on her hateful, bigoted comments here with us to exclusively respond is Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. Um, Congresswoman, thanks for being here. so I want to obviously start with those comments, Bobert comparing you to a terrorist suicide bomber. Um, what is it like to hear that kind of blatant bigotry, blatant Islamophobia coming from a fellow elected member of the House of Representatives?
2: It's shocking. And unacceptable, um, And you know, it's very unbecoming of a congresswoman uh, to use that kind of derogatory, dangerous um, uh, inciting language uh, against uh, a colleague. Many of us thought, you know, post nine eleven that we were on the men's. Uh, when I first won, I remember getting phone calls from across the world from heads of states and prime ministers um, and uh, foreign ministers congratulating me because they thought that America was past um, its sort of post-9-11 Islamophobia. And to see this happen right now in the halls of Congress uh, really is damaging, not just to the Muslim community, to myself, uh, but to the kind of country we want to be.
0: So Republican leader Kevin McCarthy has still not publicly condemned Boebert's uh, comments. On Friday, he was asked, why not? Take a listen to what he said. She apologized publicly. She
1: apologized personally. She wanted to meet personally. Denied the ability to meet personally. When she picked up the phone and she called Congresswoman Omar, she said, I want to personally apologize to you. And that's what she did.
0: Now, to be clear... After her conversation with you, Bobert went on social media and doubled down and said things that were equally incendiary. Um, yeah, I what, mean, what, what's your reaction to McCarthy and how he described it?
2: Yeah, McCarthy is a liar and a coward. He doesn't have the ability um, to condemn uh, the kind of bigoted Islamophobia and anti-Muslim rhetoric that are... Uh, being trafficked by a member of his Why doesn't his he have conference? the ability to do that? Um, because this is, this is who they are. Uh, and we have to be able to stand up to them, uh, and we have to push them to reckon with the fact that their party uh, right now is normalizing uh, anti-Muslim bigotry.
0: We should point out that there are some members of the Republican House caucus, uh, Nancy Mace, Tom Reed, Adam Kinzinger, Fred Upton, I believe, reached out to you, who have condemned the remarks. But that's four out of hundreds. Um, Most of the House... And they
2: they are being attacked.
0: They're being attacked for... For for condemning
2: it, uh, which tells you that their conference condones this. And that's why it's dangerous, because people across the world, not just in the United States, are seeing this, and they are worried. As you you know, Islamophobia is on the rise. Uh, and as, as many people have reached out to me about my safety, I remind them that this isn't about me. This is about all of the young girls across this country who wear the hijab so proudly, who are afraid for their lives.
0: It's deplorable. And we should note, and I'll spare you the sound bites, but this is not the first time that Congresswoman Boebert has, has targeted you with these bigoted comments any number of examples, she's called you a terrorist, black-hearted, evil. Um, It's not a one-off joke to her. This isn't just one errant moment. Uh, This is a pattern. What do you think Nancy Pelosi and Democratic leaders should do, if anything, about this?
2: I think of the most dangerous thing that she has recently said, is that we have a problem in Congress because there is a terrorist. Uh, And I think once you sort of invoke that kind of language, Um, You put not just my life, but the lives of my colleagues as well in danger because we don't know who's out there. You know, the people who are leaving these voicemails that are saying we are taking up arms, coming to the Capitol to protect um, our country from a terrorist are not, you know, people that we should dismiss. They're not joking. Uh, And I think it's important for us to say this kind of language this kind of hate cannot be condoned by the House of Representatives. And we should um, punish and sanction Bo Bird by stripping her of her committees, by repuking her language, by doing everything that we can to send a clear and decisive message to the American public that if the Republicans are not going to be adults and condone, uh, condemn this, that we are going to do that.
0: Do you think Speaker Pelosi is going to do that, have a vote at least to to strip over her committee assignments?
2: I've had a conversation with this speaker, uh, and I'm very confident that she will take a decisive action uh, next week. Uh, As you know, when I first got to Congress, I was worried that, you know, I wasn't going to be allowed to be sworn in because there was a ban on the hijab. She promised me that she'd take care of it. She fulfilled that promise. She's made another promise to me that she will take care of this, uh, and I believe her.
0: So we should note, uh, as you just did, this isn't just about hurt feelings, not that that is a small thing. This is about incitement, and you recently shared a voicemail message that you got, and with your permission, I'd like to uh, play that because it's important that people understand why you are so concerned. Uh, let's roll that tape if we can.
2: Come get a, f-
3: a Muslim piece of you jihadist. We know what you are.
0: You're a f- freighter. You will not live much longer, b- I can almost guarantee you that. I mean, that is chilling and upsetting to hear. How many threats like that have you received? Do you, do you genuinely feel for your life um, because of the hate campaign from Marjorie Taylor Greene, Lauren Boebert, and
2: others? Yeah, you receive... Um... Too many to count. And, you know, there is a, a, a general fear that I have, my staff has, and the community at large has. Uh, we, you know, constantly hear um, from so many people across the country uh, where their children's hijabs have been pulled off. My own daughters have experienced this. I have experienced it as a young person in this country. Uh, and we know what this kind of language that this member is using leads to. And we know that the kind of man who leaves that voicemail uh, for a member of Congress um, is not going to spare uh, a young Muslim girl when he sees her taking the bus or walking home from school um, or you know when he runs into her at the grocery store. And so we have a responsibility as leaders Uh, Words matter, um, and words can cause violence. And she knows that the language that she's using, the audience that she's using it for, um, is going to incite violence against myself and my community.
0: Well, I can't believe that we're here in 2021 in the United States of America. I can't think of anything less American uh, than this bigotry campaign of Boebert and Marjorie Taylor Greene and others, and the complicity of the leaders of the Republican Party who have not said a word. And I have nothing but sympathy and empathy for you. And we're here to bring attention to this uh, as much as possible. I
2: appreciate that. It is shameful that they can't even get themselves um, to say, I condone this language and this behavior. Damn. And that we, we will condemn yeah. this language and this behavior and that we will do better. It is vile and it is un-American. Congresswoman, yes. thank you
0: so much for being here and thank telling, you. For telling us your story today. They went on the lam after their teenage son allegedly opened fire in his high school, and now they are all charged in the horrific shooting. Senator Chris Murphy, on whether this latest rampage could wake up Congress. Stay with us.
4: We're not unlucky. This is purposeful. This is a choice made by the United States Senate to sit on our hands and do nothing while kids die. Silence has become complicity.
0: Democratic Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut speaking out this week after yet another deadly shooting, this one in Michigan, where four students were killed and seven others injured. Senator Murphy says he will consider his time in public service, quote, a failure if he is not able to pass a significant federal firearms reform bill. Senator Murphy of Connecticut joins us right now. So, Senator, um, this horrific violence at Oxford High School in Michigan, it was the deadliest School shooting in more than three years. The ninth anniversary of Sandy Hook is just over a week away. You obviously represent Sandy Hook in the Senate. We have a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, a uh, pro-gun control uh, president, Democrat. Uh, No new gun regulations have passed. Why not?
4: Well, listen, I think it's first important to remember that while the nation pays attention to the epidemic of shooting in this country on days in which there is a mass shooting, 100 people every day are dying from gunshot wounds. And we've seen a dramatic uptick in violence since the beginning of the pandemic. Um, The fact of the matter is we have the votes in the House and the Senate uh, for universal background checks bill. We have a president who will sign it. It's the rules of the Senate that prevent us from passing it. We probably have 52, 53, 54 votes in the Senate for this. So uh, the rules right now are what prevent us from being able to enact the will of the public. But I also understand that this is, I think, one of the great social change movements in this nation's history, that we can't let failure or obstacles stop us. We're going to have to continue to build a movement. If we don't change the rules of the Senate, then we're ultimately going to need 60 votes. And so we need to continue to build up our political power around the country. So Republican Senator Pat Toomey from the great Commonwealth of
0: Pennsylvania, you've worked with him on this issue. He told me a few months ago, um, you'll remember, of course, when he and Manchin, both NRA guys, put together a bill to close the so-called gun show loophole. Um, He said that he thinks that that could potentially get 60 votes in the Senate. But there's been no progress on it because people who want gun reform in the Senate want big sweeping gun reform and won't be happy with even just an incremental step like closing the gun show loophole. Wouldn't that I mean, isn't something better than nothing?
4: Listen, I won't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Right. Um, I, I want universal background checks. I want a ban on assault weapons, but I will settle for something much less because that will save lives. So I've been in negotiations all year with Senator Toomey, with Senator Cornyn, with Lindsey Graham, trying to find a compromise that can get 60 votes in the Senate. Maybe this shooting uh, will bring people back to the table. But um, we haven't taken a vote this year, in part because I've asked Senator Schumer for the room to try to negotiate that compromise that you're talking about. Listen, I wish my Republican colleagues didn't sort of have epiphanies on this issue only after mass school shootings. But that tends to be what happens. And so my hope is that in the next couple of weeks, we can get back to the table and see if we can. At the very least, as you said, maybe close the gun show loophole. That alone would save a lot of lives. Um,
0: the prosecutor in Michigan is doing something unusual. She is charging the parents of the alleged gunman with involuntary manslaughter because not only did they buy him the gun, uh, they ignored his disturbing behavior, searching for ammunition on his cell phone, drawing violent pictures at school. The school alerted them and they didn't seem to care much. Should more prosecutors be holding parents responsible when they're obviously not doing enough to keep their guns out of the hands of children who use them for violent ends?
4: Well, if parents violate the law, then they should be held accountable. In this case, I don't know the details of the Michigan law, But it looks as if these parents bought a gun for their child who shouldn't have ever possessed it. Uh, And so if parents are in violation of state law, they should be held accountable. I do think that this really should make us think hard about safe storage laws. Um, In Connecticut, we have on the books a law that requires parents to safely store their guns. And if those guns aren't locked up with minors in the house, they can be held accountable without question. Michigan doesn't have that law on the books, but we should pass that on a national basis. And I think we would get a lot of gun owners to support us, to simply say, if you have minors in the house, if you have weapons you have to keep those weapons locked up. If we just made that change, not only would that prevent some of these horrific mass shooting incidents. Suicide. Suicide, right? Which
0: is most of the gun deaths in this country are suicide, yeah.
4: And accidental shootings, right? So um, a safe storage law may be the kind of thing that could draw bipartisan compromise, that could get support of a lot of common sense gun owners, because it's not about taking anybody's weapons away. It's just about saying, if you're going to own the weapon, store it safely.
0: So let's turn to foreign policy. Um, President Biden's going to speak to Russian President Vladimir Putin. On Tuesday, we're told this call comes at the same time you know, the U.S. intelligence warning is Russia is amassing as many as 175,000 troops on the border with Ukraine and could theoretically begin a massive military offensive within the next few months. You're on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. You've spent a lot of time in Ukraine. Do you think Putin intends to invade? And what should the U.S. do, if anything, to come to Ukraine's defense if he does.
4: Yeah, I've been to Ukraine six times since I entered the Senate. I've seen the intelligence. The threat is serious. Um, I do think that uh, there's no substitute for um, person-to-person diplomacy. And so uh, I hope that this uh, meeting, this virtual meeting between President Biden and President Putin can bear fruit. But let me say this— If Russia does decide to move further into Ukraine, it would be a mistake of historic proportions for Moscow. Um, Right now, they occupy the eastern flank of the country. That's a part of Ukraine that doesn't have the same sense of Ukrainian nationalism that the rest of the country does. Um, Ukraine can become the next Afghanistan for Russia if it chooses to move further, And it's up to us in the Congress to make clear that we are going to be diplomatic, political, and military partners with Ukraine, that we are going to provide them with increased military assistance so that they can defend themselves. And I hope that we take steps in Congress in the next week to make that clear.
0: Even more lethal aid than the U.S. has already given?
4: Well, right now we have an amendment on the floor of the Senate that would dramatically increase the amount of lethal aid. I support it. Republicans right now in the Senate are blocking... That amendment from being considered. In addition, Republicans are blocking our ambassadors from being confirmed, in particular to the EU, where a lot of this work will be done to try to bring our allies together. So we've got to get our Republican colleagues to understand this is the the threat that many of us believe it to be.
0: Senator Chris Murphy of Connecticut, thanks so much for being here this morning. Women's tennis is taking a stand against the Chinese government, but for the most part, their courage stands alone. That's next. This past week, the Women's Tennis Association did something that few other athletic organizations or corporations in general have been willing to do, criticize the Chinese government and take serious steps to protest its brutality. Now, this began weeks ago when Chinese tennis champion Peng Shui accused a former top Chinese government official of sexual assault. Quote, Even if it is like an egg hitting a rock, or if I am like a moth drawn to the flame, inviting self-destruction, I will tell the truth about you, unquote, she wrote on Chinese social media. And that post vanished within 30 minutes. And then, so did she. The WTA not only spoke out against this injustice, it decided to suspend all tournaments in China because of its treatment of Peng Shui
2: We walk away from this, we're basically telling the world that not addressing sexual assault with the respect and seriousness it requires is okay because it's difficult to do. That's something that we simply cannot happen and it's not what we stand for as an organization.
0: Now, not only is the International Olympic Committee, which will hold the 2022 Winter Games in China, not only is the IOC not raising its voice in solidarity and protest, the IOC is helping the Chinese government by providing them cover. On November 21st and then again last Wednesday, the IOC told the world that they had held video calls with Peng Shui. For neither call did the IOC release the video or even a transcript. The IOC has not mentioned her allegations of sexual assault, nor would the IOC explain who set up these calls. The IOC is behaving like a mob lawyer.
1: The IOC is in bed with China. Beijing hosted the Olympics in 2008, summer games. They did it in spectacular fashion, but even then, it was apparent to many of us that the IOC was aiding and abetting a problematic regime.
0: Yes, the Olympics are supposed to be free of politics, but this is not about politics. The allegations against the Chinese government go far beyond its treatment of shui, This year, both the Trump and Biden administrations have asserted that China is committing, quote, genocide and crimes against humanity against more than one million Uyghurs, ethnic Kazakhs, Hui, other Muslims, some Christians, in internment camps or converted detention facilities, according to the U.S. State Department. Chinese authorities are forcing some women in these camps to take unknown drugs and injections. They're forcibly implanting IUDs coercing them to get abortions and surgical sterilizations, according to former detainees. Beijing, of course, denies these charges. In fact, it's possible that you are about to purchase or receive a Christmas present made, at least in part, by Uyghur forced labor in Xinjiang province. Bipartisan legislation being debated right now, and Congress would help prevent that if it passes. Right now, it's unclear that the House and Senate Democrats have a plan to get that legislation to President Biden's desk, with The Washington Post reporting that the Biden State Department is seeking to water down this legislation. We know that for a time, Apple and Nike, a lot of big companies are pushing against it. They're not going to admit it. Who's going to go out lobbying in favor of slave labor? But this is their bottom line. Of course, Apple and Nike publicly claim to decry slave labor. But to be clear, the behavior we are seeing from U.S. corporations is not about a company Surviving, it's about discontent with just hundreds of millions of dollars, desiring instead billions of dollars. And those riches, they create blinders so that you get comments like this one about the Chinese government this past week from billionaire hedge fund manager Ray Dalio.
1: As a top-down country, what they're doing is that it's that kind of like a strict parent. They behave like a strict parent and they go through that.
0: That is their approach. We have our approach. A strict parent. Just like, you know, Casey Anthony. Even companies that here in the U.S. pride themselves on progressive values will whitewash for gold. For a Chinese release, Marvel Studios' Doctor Strange turned a major Tibetan character into a Celtic one, reportedly for fear of offending China. Here's Tom Cruise's iconic bomber jacket in Top Gun from 1986, which includes a Flag of Taiwan patch. And here's Paramount's replacement patch. Decidedly not Taiwan for next year's sequel. Here's Disney in the credits for Mulan thanking the publicity department of the Chinese Communist Party in Xinjiang, where the cultural genocide is happening. Disney, of course, bought the rights to The Simpsons for its streaming service. And this last week, we learned that this 2005 episode, which shows The Simpsons in Beijing's Tiananmen Square, the site of a brutal crackdown on pro-democracy protesters, a sign reads, In the Simpsons episode, on this site in 1989, nothing happened. And that episode, that's not available for Disney Plus subscribers in Hong Kong. Disney has not responded to requests for comment. That Simpsons episode in Hong Kong disappeared like Peng Shui. Disappeared like citizen journalist Zhang Jian, whom the Chinese government has locked up for telling the truth about COVID-19. Disappeared. Like the consciences of the millionaires and billionaires in Hollywood and the NBA and the IOC and Wall Street are all so eager for Chinese cash, they are pretending none of this is happening. There is no amount of money that can buy enough soap to wash that blood off their hands. Thanks for spending your Sunday with us. Fareed Zakaria, GPS, does next